morning, everyone. Could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1? Thank you, Bert and Sally. Great job, as always. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to wrap up our study of Habakkuk chapter 2. There's only three chapters in this book. And in the, in the first session, we'll be looking at verse 19, which talks about the fifth woe spoken by the Lord against the Babylonians for their practice of idolatry. So we'll be talking about idolatry in the first session, and then the next, uh, and then in the second session, we'll be looking at verse 20. Uh, just a couple announcements. Uh, the uh, our corporate prayer meeting is going to be this week at, on uh, the 29th, Wednesday, the 29th. So if you're available, we started at six o'clock here, and uh, so six o'clock for the corporate prayer meeting. And also, uh, there'll be, just as uh, far as the upcoming uh, Christmas schedule, uh, we'll have no uh, uh, Bible class on the 24th, Christmas Eve, and also the 27th, and then we'll resume classes on the 31st. We'll have a New Year's Eve uh, a ser a service, but um, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper at that time, so keep that in mind. So the 24th, we don't have class, 27th, the Wednesday, and then we, we're back at it on the 31st and uh, corporate meeting this uh, on Wednesday. Also, if there are any Auburn fans, I have a, a box of Kleenex right here. <laughs> I'm from Massachusetts, I'm a wise guy, sorry about it. I know I can feel your pain, because the Red Sox used to lose to the Yankees all the time and broke my heart so many times, so. But uh, what a game, I, I, was, I, I kinda, I, I kinda was lo looking at the second half. I was work, doing stuff, I was working, but I, I, had to, I would go over and check, check what was going on. So when I saw that, uh, you know, uh, that last play, I mean, the guy has all the time in the world back there. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we should have bought Weekly Russian on that ball, and we, that, they would have been sacked. But uh, that kid's gonna be the Heisman Trophy winner in a couple of years, I think. He's a big dude, and he can throw the ball, he runs the ball. But uh, I think Auburn kind of outplayed them, and it's heartbreaking for the Auburn fans. And uh, Alabama, hey, a win is a win, as we say. Like, who cares how good, how, we're not getting style points on it, so I think you guys have a shot for the, uh, the national title, as always. As long as you have Saban, uh, you have a chance. And you keep getting recruiting guys like that quarterback, who's a sophomore, and that's crazy. I'm kind of hoping my Patriots get the number one pick. I think we're going to lose Belichick. I think they're going to send him shopping. So uh, hopefully we get the number one pick, and I want that LSU quarterback. <laughs> I don't know, or Tom Brady's, you know, son or whatever, you know, because the day, see, I, I know I, these things, these Kleenex are left over from when Tom Brady left in 2019. <laughs> we, it's kind of like Babe Ruth. How do you let Babe Ruth sell him to the Yankees? And, 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 and then we didn't win for a World's Championship in 86 years. They called it the curse of the Bambino. Now the Patriots will never win for another 100 years years, I'll be dead before they win another one because we gave let Tom Brady walk. How do you do that? I will never know. Anyway, so enough of that. Good to have you all with us and uh, let's uh, get right to it. We take a moment to sign the prayer down to uh, prepare ourselves to hear uh, what the Holy Spirit's going to say to us through the communication of the Word of God and so to ensure the fact that we're in fellowship with God, we need to examine ourselves, take a moment to sign the prayer to examine ourselves to see if we need to confess any known sin to the Father. And the reason why is because any mental, verbal, or overactive sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired, and that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. And if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, or distracting to you, like that ball guy ball game might have distracted you if you're an Auburn fan. Achilles cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given to us. We know this day is a gift from you. You promised us not years and decades, but days. 
and another day we have given to you as a gift to bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And it's a great honor and privilege to serve you. We just thank you, Father, for the, the wonderful blessings that you've given to us as being citizens of the United States, but also, more importantly, being citizens of heaven in union with your son, Jesus Christ, seated at your right hand as victor in the angelic conflict. We just thank you, Father, for the giving us the victory over sin and Satan and his cosmic system through our union identification with your son, through the baptism of the Spirit. And so, Father, we know that you look at us now as crucified, died, buried, raised and seated with your son. And I just pray, Father, for our country. I lift up our country, our president. I pray you would give our, our leaders the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country and the military leadership and those involved in uh, intelligence, co covert operations. I pray you would give our uh, executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments and military the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country and raise up more uh, people in our government that are believers and uh, faithful believers and also or those who might not be, but they have uh, understand uh, the Ten Commandments and how to uh, love your neighbors yourself. And I just pray, Father, that uh, they would have establishment principles. Thank you for the ones that we do have. And I also pray for the church here in America that they would uh, obey what you commanded us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, to pray for their leaders as, uh, so that we might live a tranquil and quiet life in this country and also because uh, you desire uh, all people to be saved. So, Father, we just uh, thank you, Father, for our, our leadership in our country. I thank you for the leadership in this church, in this ministry, and I just pray, Father, that you would, uh, all of us in this ministry can, can grow in love toward you and each other by means of a total experiential knowledge of your son. I pray, Father, for this uh, service today. I pray that you would empower me uh, to deliver the message with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. Your word says when we're weak, we're strong. Your power is manifested on human weakness. And I thank you for the great honor and privilege that you've given me to uh, communicate your word to your people, to provide them the necessary spiritual nourishment, your people who you purchased with the blood of your son. So I take this very seriously. And I also pray, Father, for the people in the audience. I thank you for those here this morning and those who might be visiting. And I just thank you for each and every person. And I pray that each person will be spoken to by the ministry of the Spirit and also all of us as a corporate unit. I pray that you would help by the Spirit everyone to concentrate, to carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting in order to make personal application. And I pray that as a result, all of us would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is in his name we pray, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. As you can see on the board, as I pointed out for the opening prayer, uh, this will be our 33rd hour in the book of Habakkuk. It's a three ch uh, chapters long, and we're going to complete the second chapter today. And uh, today in the first session, we'll be looking at Habakkuk 2.19, which presents to us the fifth and final woe that God pronounced against the kingdom of Babylon in the 7th uh, century, century B.C. And uh, was, here we see it's for their practice of idolatry, this fifth one. Uh, the previous woes, the first four, were related to their treatment of the various citizens throughout the various nations in the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world uh, in the 7th century B.C. and ultimately in the 6th century B.C. Now, if you're being new into this study, let's go back quickly by way of review about this book in, this, in, a, in a historical setting. This book was written by Habakkuk. It's actually a, a vision he had between him and God. He was in the throne room of God. It's a dialogue between him and God. And he's complaining. He starts off by complaining uh, to uh, God about the, the, uh, on the, um, the apostasy in his nation. People who were believers in a covenant relationship with God, they were in a great apostasy, so much so that their behavior was indistinguishable from the non-believer. And so uh, in the first four verses, Habakkuk goes after God saying, what are you waiting for? You need to do something with this. Our nation's falling apart. And morally and ethically, we're in a great, in a great place of disgrace. And so then God comes back and answers him. In verses 5 through 11, saying he's going to use the Babylonians as his instrument to judge the apostasy in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Habakkuk comes back and says, I don't like that choice. The Babylonians, how can you use them to, uh, to, to, uh, to uh, judge? your people. And so in verses 12 through 17, right to the end of the chapter, Habakkuk goes back and says, you can't choose the Babylons, uh, Babylonians, and here's why. And then we come back to chapter 2, and then God says, hey, I'm going to judge the Babylonians as well. Eventually, I will get to them as well. But first, I'm going to use them to uh, not only discipline your people, but also the various nations in the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world who are in unrepentant idolatry. 
They're unrepentant unbelievers and unrepentant idolatry. And God waited generations for these people to repent and to trust in him, and they never did. So now he's going to use Babylon as his instrument of judgment. So we're seeing that God, even up to this present moment and on into the, the tribulation and the second advent, God uses evil nations to destroy evil nations. And so we see in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and 7, and even verse, uh, chapter 8, we see that we have Babylon, and then Medo Persia, Daniel predicted, would come and defeat Babylon and absorb Babylon uh, into its, uh, its uh, empire. And then Babylon, uh, after they had uh, been defeated, Medo Persia is a world ruler, and they were for over 200 years, Babylon only 66. Then Alexander the Great's Greek Empire came along and defeated Medo Persia. And then we see that Alexander's four generals came along and took over the empire after his death. But Greece was defeated by Rome. Each one of these nations were wicked pagan nations. Wicked pagan nations, not in a covenant relationship with God. So with regards to the southern kingdom of Judah, remember historically uh, that uh, the after, remember King Solomon, when he was the, uh, took over for his father David, he eventually, later in his life, he had his love for his foreign women uh, kept him away from being faithful to his, his relationship with God, his covenant relationship with God. So we see that uh, because of his unrepentant idolatry and worshiping the gods of his foreign wives, uh, then God brought in a prophet to say, hey, I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you, but I will take it away from your son because of your apostasy and you're unrepentant about it. And so we see that Rehoboam comes on the scene after his father's death, and we see that Rehoboam was uh, uh, presiding over the, uh, the, the nation, the United Kingdom at that point, and God uh, used his, uh, his, uh, his younger advisors to make, him a, make a bad decision, which eventually uh, resulted in a civil war. So remember, uh, Rehoboam had two sets of advisors, the older ones that were under Solomon. Uh, he, they said to him, hey, relieve the tax burden. And and they'll love you for it. Whereas the younger guys were saying, no, don't do that. They won't respect you if you do that. So make it even more difficult than Solomon did. And Solomon taxed the people exorbitantly, which God warned them about if you get a king because of his building projects for his wife and himself. So we see that uh, we see they, uh, at that point, the 10 of the tribes of Israel, with the exclusion of Judah and Benjamin, rebelled against, this, uh, against Rehoboam, and there was a civil war, and it was never again to be a united kingdom. It won't be a united kingdom until Jesus Christ's millennial reign which we're going to talk about uh, in, the, in the next uh, chapter. So we have, at this point, we see that in 722, B.C., God used the Assyrian Empire, not Syria, but Assyrian Empire, which preceded Babylon. Assyria was used by God in 722 B.C. to discipline the northern kingdom. And they were judged by God, disciplined by God, and they, never, they were dispossessed from the land, and they never returned again. So this left the southern kingdom of Judah, okay, which was composed of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And so after a little less than 100 years, a little over 100 years later, we see that God was fed up with the southern kingdom of Judah for their apostasy. And there was only a small remnant of believers that were faithful to God, led by people like Habakkuk, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, and people like that, Jeremiah, the great Jeremiah, and there were many others. But again, they were the minority in the nation. And so we see that in 605, 596, and 597, excuse me, and 586 BC, God uh, set the Babylonian Empire three times in to destroy and discipline the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were dispossessed. They were sent to Babylon uh, for 70 years according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And when we study the book of Habakkuk in 516 BC with the completion of the temple, uh, the rebuilt temple, Zerubbabel's temple, that discipline ended. So what we have here in the book of Habakkuk is on the eve of destruction. Remember that song in the 60s, the eve of destruction. This is the eve of destruction for the southern kingdom of Judah and all these nations at that time because Babylon had just defeated historically in 605 B.C. Uh, Egypt at Carchemish, which is up near Lebanon today. And so that was a, a climactic battle and that meant the whole uh, Mediterranean region now was in the hands of Babylon. And so here we have Habakkuk having this vision. He's in the presence of God. We saw in the very first verse of the, uh, of the book. He's in the presence 
says he has a vision of the, of the Lord in his temple and the third heaven and amidst the angels, the, uh, the spirit beings, uh, and uh, both elect and non-elect. And he's in there and he's, getting, he's having this dialogue with God, which makes him very unique because you don't see that, uh, a prophet like that of Israel having a dialogue with God. So that's the setting we have right now uh, in, this, uh, in this particular book where we're at. So let's look at chapter two. We'll read the entire chapter. And then we're gonna read, uh, study in detail, verse 19. And uh, we're doing this because we want to study the Bible and its context. And the verse we're working on in the first session, verse 19, we want to study it in its literary context, in its historical context, which I've given you the background on. And we see that uh, we don't want to build a doctrine or a teaching out of one verse. You've got to compare scripture with scripture. So when we study the Bible, we study, uh, we study a historical, grammatical uh, approach to the Bible, literary context, historical context. We go back to the original languages and we uh, compare scripture with scripture. Now, the great thing about the modern translations, we have a plethora of great translations and you're getting the word of God in these translations. There's some things that they can't bring out, which I, as my responsibility as the pastor and interpreter here, to do that. So look at Habakkuk chapter two, verse one, with this introduction out of the way. Habakkuk two, one. You you can read with me on the board if you don't have a Bible. Excuse me. I will, Habakkuk starts off in verse 1 by saying, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, speaking of God, of course, and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it will certainly come and will not delay. So these, God's saying there, the prophecy that I'm about to give to you, and verses 4 through 20, will be fulfilled in its time. As it turns out, it was in 539 B.C., as recorded in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar was presiding over the Babylonian Empire, the great-grandchild of Nebuchadnezzar. And so it was fulfilled 66 years later, this prophecy. In fact, Jeremiah 51, we read a couple of weeks ago, an enormous chapter. Uh, Jeremiah says the same thing that Habakkuk says. In fact, Habakkuk wrote his, uh, received his prophecy before Je uh, Jeremiah did. And Jeremiah actually says in his, when he, when he brings out this prophecy, which is almost like pretty much identical to what Habakkuk says in chapter 2, we see that he says, pronounce this or proclaim this or uh, 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 broadcast this in Babylon itself. Now, the amazing thing is, Babylon's just getting going. They had just defeated Egypt, they defeated Assyria, but they really haven't shown, uh, they haven't really completed all that they were about to do. In fact, the, 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 uh, there's a whole bunch uh, of events that were going to transpire over the next 60 years that have yet to come, which is going to serve as the basis for God judging them. So it says in verse uh, uh, 4, and now again, uh, we've seen this with the prophets of Israel, and we see this in the book of Habakkuk as well. God's now going to list the charges against the Babylonian empire. He lists the charges. We're in a courtroom. There's a courtroom in heaven. In fact, Satan has access to the throne room of heaven. The book of Revelation says that. And that's why we need an advocate with the Father, 1 John 2.1. See, Satan was, uh, was uh, condemned to the lake of fire for his rebellion against God in eternity past. A rebellion which was described for us in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through the end of that chapter. And so Satan, uh, Matthew 25, 41, with his angels, were sentenced to the lake of fire, but that appears to have been uh, appealed by Satan because right now he's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul says this. Presently, 1 John 5, 19, the whole world is under his power. And also, he deceives the entire world and he makes accusations against the saints day and night before the throne room of God. So there's a courtroom drama going on and we're a part of it. Remember, we're seated at the right hand of the Father. In fact, we're going to judge angels during the uh, when, uh, Christ's second advent, 1 Corinthians 6.3. So this is uh, what we have here is God's pre uh, presenting the charges against the Babylonians. And we see that uh, the angels, the elect angels, are actually bearing witness to what they would do and have done already up to this point in history. So it says in verse 4, God speaking of the Babylonians, describing them. He says, see, the Babylonians puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous, a righteous person is someone who's believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In Old Testament Israel, before Jesus came on the scene, the God of Israel, it was trust in the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh. 
And so uh, today, to be righteous, you need to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Why do you need to do that? Why do I need to do that? Because we're all under the wrath of God. That's why. First three chapters of Romans condemn both Jew and Gentile. Everybody's under the wrath of God. God's perfect. His character is holy, transcendent of his creatures. And so no one can escape the wrath of God except through faith in Jesus Christ. Not one of us is perfect in this room. Not you, not me. I don't care if your Aunt Millie, Paul, he's Aunt Millie. She's not perfect either. And my mother, my sweet mother, she wasn't perfect either. We're all sinners, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 and Romans 3.10. So to believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to raise a hand, walking out, just believe in him. And at that moment, the father credits or imputes to your bankrupt account his son's righteousness and declares you justified. We studied 15 hours in the doctrine of justification and on Wednesday evenings. And so you are now righteous as God is. Not because of what you did or what I did, but based upon the merits of the object of our faith. It's a gift. You don't earn it or deserve it. So he's talking to these people, and particularly those who are faithful to him, through obedience to his word. So he says, but the righteous, in contrast to the Babylonian, shall live by his faith. Faith in what? God's word. Then it says in verse 15, indeed, speaking of the Babylonian, continuing to do this, wine betrays him. But as we'll see, that's a figure of reference for their imperialistic greed. How do we know that? Look at the, final, the several, uh, several, several different statements that complete the verse. Verse 5 says he is arrogant and never at rest because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He says uh, he gathers to himself all the nations. And he takes captive all the peoples. So it's his imperialistic greed. Will not all of them taunt him, these nations that Babylon has defeated, and with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors, Babylon, uh, make you uh, arise, suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who were left will plunder you, for you have shed man's blood. That means innocent blood. They've committed, uh, they've called uh, total warfare. They were involved in uh, what we call collateral damage today. They murdered citizens, uh, uh, civilians, women and children, and men who are innocent, not soldiers. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So he's talking about the principle of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. People don't understand that, even in the Christian community. It must, that means simply that the punishment must fit the crime. So as it says in the book of Genesis, when, uh, when capital punishment was instituted by God after the flood with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, innocent people, murdered, cold-blooded, capital crime, murder, they must be put to death because God requires it. They must die for their, because God's justice demands it. And we don't believe that in this country. Blood is on our land. Will we not look at, at history and the wreckage of the human history? We, we see all these nations have gone down to defeat and destroyed because they disobey God. And we don't practice capital punishment. And no, I don't hear any presidential candidate talking about this. Woe to this country. The country that we love and many of you bled for and your friends bled for. And what are we doing to it? Our leaders don't believe, and our country doesn't believe in, the, in, the, in capital punishment. Remember, Jesus was, don't tell me that we should, uh, because the people have made bad decisions, bad, bad decisions and condemned men to death uh, erroneously. Look at Jesus. Look at the apostles. He suffered capital punishment, and Pilate said he was innocent. Did Jesus on the cross say, we're going get, to get rid of capital punishment? Did Paul say that? With Peter, they were all murdered by Nero. No. You don't throw the baby out with a bath water. Of course you keep it. And just because a judge makes a bad decision or a, 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 a jury appears, you have the wrong information, they make a bad decision and condemn a man that's innocent to death, that doesn't mean we should do away with it. God will hold these judges to account. God will judge everybody to account. That's we let, let God do his job, do what we're supposed to be doing, which is to practice capital punishment. John, Romans chapter 13 talks about this. But we don't believe in that. And so now we're going, to get, we're going to get what's coming to us. We don't want to exercise our justice against uh, those who are committing capital crimes. Well, guess what? God's going to judge us for that. And he's going to give justice to the families that don't get justice. 
Woe to him, the Babylonian, who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds this city with bloodshed and establishes towns by crime. But has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? And this describes the nations, including our own today. For the Lord, will, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's going to be the millennial reign of Christ as we studied. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, speaking of the Babylonians still, pouring it out from the wineskin till they're drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And your destruction of animals will terrify you. You, you have shed man's blood. Another again, another reference to killing innocent people. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So they were involved in imperialistic greed. We saw in the first chapter, they loved their military industrial complex. It was their God. Every nation needs a military industrial complex. We have one. All nations have it. But this, these guys were going way too far. They worshiped weapons. They worshiped their military power. And God's saying, I'm not... I'm not happy with that either. It's one of the condemnation against them in the first chapter. Now, we get to the, the final several verses, three verses, 18 through 20, where actually 18 and 19 actually condemn the Babylonians for their idolatry, which is in relation to, the, it's in relation to their relationship to God. These other things that they did, we see in verses 4, these other charges against Babylon in verses 4 through 17 are all related to their treatment of the various citizens and various nations throughout the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world in the 6th and 7th century BC. So now we're going to have a, a condemnation of their idolatry, which is very much applicable today because every nation, including our own, is practicing idolatry. Even Christians in the church are practicing idolatry, and I'll explain how. Verse 18, of what value is an idol since a man is carved it? Or an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trust in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Here's my translation of verse 19. Our verse for this, in the first session uh, from the original language is Disaster. That's what the woe means there. Disaster to the one who says to a piece of wood, come to life. To a lifeless piece of stone, wake up. Does it have the ability to give guidance? See, it is overlaid with gold and silver, but there's absolutely no breath within its inner parts. So verse 19 is continuing the Lord's response to Habakkuk's argument against his choice of the Babylonians to discipline the apostate citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 7th and 6th century B.C.s. And this argument is recorded in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, as we pointed out to you. Now the response begins in verse 2, and it ends in verse 20. So these verses, verses 2 through 20, are presenting the Lord's decision to judge the Babylonian Empire in the future for their unrepentant sinful behavior. Specifically, he will judge them because of their evil treatment of those nations they conquered in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world at the end of the 7th century B.C. and what they would do at the beginning of the 6th century B.C. However, as I pointed out to you in passing earlier, verses 18 and 19 revealed that the Lord will judge the Babylonians because they're also unrepentant idolaters. In fact, these verses constitute the fifth and final woe directed at the Babylonians by the Lord God of Israel. So therefore, verse 19 contains the fifth and final woe here in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 20, which, like the first four woes, in verses 6, 9, 12, and 15, respectively, is directed against the Babylonians. Now, let me tell you something here. We have to always balance this. We're talking a lot about judgment. People in this country and around the world, in many places, especially America, especially in the postmodern era of America, we're going the way of Europe. We rejected truth. 
We rejected the Bible. We make fun of people of the Bible. I can tell you a funny story. In Huntsville itself, I was talking to a, a young woman who she was like in her 20s at a coffee shop. And we're getting to talking and everything. When she finds out I teach the Bible, boom. Stop, didn't, didn't, I haven't talked to her since. You think that's by accident? That tells you the culture that we live in. They look at Christians and they think they're all, they look at pastors and they think they're all like teller evangelists and, and, and exploiting people for money. So we got to, this is what's going on in our country. So we've rejected the truth. We've rejected the idea of a God that judges. We, it makes us uncomfortable. But he's also a God of love. This is the beauty of God. They don't give a balanced view of God. Yes, God is a God of judgment. Why? Because he's holy. But he's also a God of love. And that he sent his one and only son to become a human being, lower than the angels, as it says in Hebrews 2, to suffer the wrath of God on the cross for us so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. That's how much God loves you. When he cried out, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was taking, the, he was bearing the consequences for our sins and the sins of me, you, Hitler, Stalin, every person, past, present, and future, was, he was suffering the wrath of God in our place. What should you use if you're a Christian? What does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you and me. Doesn't that make you want to be, fall in love with him even more? Aren't we supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Aren't we supposed to love one another as Christ has loved us? It's directly related to our spiritual life, what he did for us at Calvary. Don't ever lose that fact. So he loves us. And he, will, he doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire. In fact, he gives this prophecy 66 years before he comes down on these people. And you're going to remember another thing. For centuries... He waited for these idolaters to stop worshiping the creation, but to worship him, the creator. And they wouldn't do it. He, generations. He even said, he taught this principle to Abraham in, Ge Abraham in Genesis 15, talking about his descendants, the, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that your descendants will be in Egypt for 400 years till the iniquity of the Amorite is complete. 400 years. God is long-suffering, but he's not everlasting suffering. So yes, he's a God of judgment. If he, and I love when people talk about, or people who call themselves atheists, please, and they talk about justice. Are you kidding me? You don't have any right to talk about justice. There's no God. There's no God, there's no right and wrong. You can do whatever you want, kill whoever you want. There's nobody, you're the one, you're God. That's exactly what the atheists, they think they have an opportunity uh, to, to talk about justice. You don't have any right to talk about justice. There's no God. There's no absolutes unless you're God. So here we have God waited and waited and waited and waited for these people because he desires all people to be saved and come to an experiential knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. And then also 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Very important we understand to keep a balanced view of what the Bible teaches. So the first four woes against the Babylonians because of their evil, sinful treatment of the citizens of the various nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world at the end of the 7th century B.C. and the beginning of the 6th century B.C. However, the fifth and final woe is against the Babylonians because of their unrepentant, sinful, evil conduct in relation to God. And specifically, this woe is addressed to the Babylonians because of their unrepentant idolatry in which they rejected worshiping the true and living God instead of worshiping gods, instead of they worship gods of their own creation. Talk about insanity. So this is the fifth, the fifth time in chapter 2 of Habakkuk that we've seen the interjection in the Hebrew hoy. It's translated in your Bible's woe. It actually means disaster. It indicates dissatisfaction and discomfort and occurs entirely in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament with, with one exception, 1 Kings 13.30. As we noted in our previous studies of this word and the verses I pointed out to you, it uh, can be translated woe or alas, but in today's English, a better translation would be disaster, since the word pertains to a sudden calamitous event bringing great damage, loss, or destruction. So as was the case when the word was used in verses 6, 9, 12, and 15 of this chapter, the word here in verse 19 is expressing the idea of the Lord God of Israel promising that disaster would strike the Babylonians. 
and the contents of verses 18 and 19 reveal that this disaster will come against the Babylonians again because of their unrepentant idolatry. So the fifth woe asserts that disaster will come to the person who says to a piece of wood, come to life. It also asserts that disaster will come to the person who says to a piece of lifeless stone, wake up. In context, the person issuing these commands is a Babylonian idolater. This is what we have going on here in the passage. So this, uh, we see these two commands present the absurdity of idolatry. And you say, what does that have to do with me? I don't worship but a little figurine, unless you're into the New Age thing and the crystals and all that. You know, I don't do this. Oh, we do other things, though. We're more sophisticated in idolatry. Case in point, if I grew up, I'll, I'll, so, you, so you all you don't get too uncomfortable. I grew up in Massachusetts. There's a bastion of idolatry there. That's right. How so, Bill? Well, it's not because we worship Mary in the, we used to call this, you know, in the, I came from a Roman Catholic background. We used to have this Mary in the bathtub. You know, people used to have their, an idol of Mary in, in, a, in, a, in a thing of like a, a, a bath, okay? So we used to call Mary in the bathtub. So the people, we're not, I'm not talking about this, that. I'm talking about in, not just with Roman Catholicism, but we see that idolatry has manifested itself in Massachusetts and other parts of this country and around the world through entertainment, sports. I grew up loving the Beatles. Anything they said, did, I was watch. I'd re- wear my hair like them when I used to have hair, do, try to sing like them, whatever. And they were my idols, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, whatever those guys said, well, I was all over that. They were my idols. In fact, John Lennon said we came out, he said, we're bigger than Jesus. And what he meant is, is that in, this, in, in England in particular, we're more important than Jesus is to these kids. And in many places that was true, even in our own country. I know it was true in my life. I'm not saying he's right, he's just making an observation. In sports, and oh, growing up, you know, today Tom Brady was a big idol. Uh, you know, sports is a big thing. People, I get this picture somebody put that out there, and it shows these people, and they're at a football game, and it's like blasting snow. You get, I've been to those games, and the snow, and the rain, and there's 50,000 people in a football stadium. Talk about devotion to their team, right? Oh, if we could have people who come to church like that. Oh, man, I had a lot of amens from pastors and everything. I posted that. I was like, that's a great picture. If only the church was as devoted as these fans are to their team. Well, they'll sit through all kinds of inclement weather. I told you the story when I, when I was in Iowa. I, she was a hot ticket, I, but she was so out in left field. Her name was Donna. She's like, Donna, Donna, the prima Donna, the 50 song. And so Donna, she was an older lady, but she would go. She had all kinds of excuses. She'd come to our church every now and then, but the weather had to be perfect. So she'd say, I, can't. I said, you're going to come to church? And I said, I can't come. It's too windy. I said, too windy? Oh, really, too windy? Oh, it's raining out. There's all kinds of excuses. Like, And people are like that. It's like, okay, you can give me that excuse. But when you stand before the Lord who says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, the habit of son, I don't think that's going to fly with him. You can fake me out, but you're not faking me out. You're just making yourself look foolish. Show up. You're supposed to. <laughs> so people are involved in gross idolatry where they put, even, here's this very important, here's, we do this in America more than any other nation. The God of relationships, the God of sex. Pornography is an idol to men. Pornography is an idol to men. And all kinds of relationships. All we get in our say, you've got to have a relationship. You're nobody, you're not, you define yourself by having a husband or a wife and kids in a house, in a white picket fence. Well, no, I'm not going to define myself as that. I'm a child of God, creating the image of God. So, with the, but in the world that we live in, Satan is the God of this world, and he will do everything he can to go and get you to worship the creation rather than the creator and get distracted you. That's why it's kind of like going to McDonald's and you get a number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. Well, Satan's like that. What form of idolatry would you like? Here's this. You want to be in sports? Music? Entertainment? Relationships? Sex? Money? Oh, money's a big one in our country. You know how people feel, the way they spend their money, how they feel towards you is the way they spend their money. Let's face it, we love money in our country. Even Christians do. Of course they do. Look at they, what they spend their money on. I know, I know Christian, I know this Christian person, Christian, I'm not gonna say male, female. Yeah, that's, I might as well tell you. Here's a guy. He spent $20,000 on a dog to keep a dog alive. 
In Iowa, we would take a pistol and walk the guy out the door, and we'd go, give me a bone, give him a cookie, and then right in the back of the head, we did that. You know, a guy used to do that, put down dogs, people didn't want to put their animals down. He would do it for them. We call him the gang, uh, the, uh, uh, what do you call it, Luca Brazzi, okay? So the people, they spent $20,000 on a dog to keep the dog alive, to keep his wife happy, it was his, you know, her dog. Don't you think that's a little bit over the top? People are more important, aren't they? God's more important, right? So we have a sophisticated form of idolatry in our country. Very important. Now, if you love dogs, don't get all freaked out. I love dogs too. I love dogs. I'm just saying you gotta watch out because this is what people will do. It's Satan is very insidious. He's smarter than he's not a little guy with a white pit, uh, with a with a you know a cute little suit and a tail and you know he's no. He's the most beautiful creature ever come to the hand of God, and he's the wisest, wisest creature that ever come to the hand of God. And you think you're going to outsmart him? He's got people in their back pocket. He's deceived the world, and yet here's God sitting in his heaven, in his, in his, in his throne room. He created everything. He gave us our bodies. He gave us the earth. He gave us the air, the water we drink. Oh, we, we had Thanksgiving, and I had so, so much turkey and food. It was like, oh, my gosh. It was great. We got all these blessings. Did we ever take time to thank God? There are people who do. But here's God. And people say, oh, you don't exist. Okay. And I don't exist. So they can sit there and deceive themselves. The Bible says in Romans 1, 18 through 31, it's evident within them there's a God. It's also creation says there's a God. I let a, I let a, a person to, to believe that there's a God by saying, you're too, you're too intricate, you're so fearfully and wonderfully made, look at us, we're so unique, yet different, and different and unique at the same time. Amazing, look at us, we're a miracle. Are you gonna tell me there's no God? You know, cause and effect. This, so, so basically, you take, so you, to say that there's, that this stuff all happened by accident, it's like taking the alphabet and rolling, uh, the letters of the alphabet rolling down a hill and it comes out to be a beautiful Shakespearean poem. Ain't gonna happen. The intelligent mind is behind it. Okay? So idolatry is something we have to deal with. That John, the last thing he said to his, the Christians in the Roman province of Asia in 1 John 5, 21, watch out for idols. Watch for idols. So I say to you, watch out for idols. So we see here, that these two commands present the absurdity of idolatry as practiced in the 6th and, century, 6th and 7th century BCs and are followed by a rhetorical question, which is addressed to the prophet Habakkuk and the faithful remnant of Judah by the God of Israel. It speaks, or asks, pardon me, it asks, if a piece of wood or stone fashioned by a craftsman into an isle to be worshipped by people can give guidance to a person? This question demands, of course, an emphatic negative response. Therefore, this rhetorical question is actually, a, you could turn it into an emphatic assertion. It asserts that emphatically, that an idol does not have the ability to give guidance to people with regards to direction in life. Then we have an emphatic declaration, which asserts that the idol is overlaid with gold and silver, in the sense that that piece of wood or the lifeless stone are covered with these two precious elements. And then we have an adversative clause, which presents the contrast with the previous emphatic declaration, which asserts that an idol is overlaid with gold and silver, and the former asserts that there's absolutely no breath within the inner parts of the idol. So therefore, this indicates that an idol is overlaid with gold and silver, but there's absolutely no breath in it in, in whatsoever. Or in other words, this word indicates that there's absolutely no breath within the inner parts of the idol, despite the fact that it is overlaid with pre precious elements, previous elements, such as uh, gold and silver. Tim Shenton, a great expositor of the book of Habakkuk, he says the following, the idol might look beautiful on the outside, but it's a mask. Under the precious metal lies an object that has no breath in it. It is lifeless and therefore owns no soul, no feelings, no understanding, no spirit. How then can it give guidance? O. Palmer Robinson, another commentator of Habakkuk, he says, the glitter of the idol cannot conceal its lifelessness. Its spectacular outer coatings may exude a shimmering illusion of li li uh, liveliness, but the very coverings themselves attest to their deadness. As the mode of expression chosen by Habakkuk emphasizes, there is no breath at all 
in the idol. And then finally, J.D. Currid writes, idols may look good on the outside. They are sheathed with gold and silver, but on the inside there's no breath of life. Idols are empty and vicious. The luster is truly mere facade. This is true no matter what the idol one serves. And then he says, material things may present an attractive outward appearance, but what they provide is only skin deep. They give no satisfaction or true purpose and meaning. Riches are a whitewashed sepulcher filled with decaying bones, end of quote. Now, listen to me carefully. If I may, I'd mentioned to you that I was a, a wicked idolater. I was a big sports guy. Everything was sports. Sports was my god. I grew up a Red Sox fan, and needless to say, you know, I used these clinics a lot of times when we lost to the Yankees, and we did all the time. I was also, you know, I loved Bobby Orr, the hockey, I loved the Celtic. We had great sports. The Celtics were always winning championships with Russell and then Collins and Havlicek and then Larry Bird. But I was out of the idolatry of that by, by then. But we had, and then the Beatles came along and it was Elvis you know, before that and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. And so those were my gods, okay? And women, just like a lot of people were women, okay? So uh, that, was, that was what the idolatry I was immersed in. And you want to know something? I never ever got to the contentment and fulfillment in life that I have now through a late relationship with Jesus Christ. I, now I have this fulfillment. I have this contentment. I know why I'm here. There's a purpose for my life. I didn't have that. I was, though I had all these, these things and these gods and, and a pretty girlfriend as, 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 on my arm, beautiful Lebanese girl, and I was like, a, you know, I, was, I, had, I even had a fan club in my band. I couldn't believe that. I was cracking up. But I wasn't happy. I was miserable. None of this could give me happiness. None of this gave me fulfillment. None of this gave me joy. I had no answers. And then I got saved at 19, but I still was screwed up for about four or five, four or five years. And finally I said, you know, God... I don't know my Bible. I was writing, I was a friend of mine who led me to the Lord, and he was, a, he was my mentor in guitar, great guitar player, great musician. And uh, he was talking, he was listening to J. Vera McGee on the radio, and he was saying, talking about theophanies. And I go, what's a theophany? And he said to me, he says, you're a Christian and you don't know what a theophany is? And I had two choices there. One, I hate you, you son of a gun, you wise guy. Instead, when I said, or I could say, you know what, I don't, and I'm upset, why don't I? I've been a Christian for four or five years, and I still don't know this. So that's what you can do. When somebody convicts you, you and the Spirit was convicting me, I had two choices to make. See you later. I'm not your friend anymore. I don't like you for what you said. Or it's the truth. I need to do something about it. You know what? I started praying very earnestly. Lord, please, I need to learn my Bible. In fact, I was sitting writing a song, a Christian song, and after it I said, I don't know my Bible the way I should. Well, next thing you know, he tells me, the same guy tells me about J. Vernon McGee on the radio. And that was it. I just fell in love with the Bible. I read his bibliographies and his book. And, his book. and then, I, then I, next thing I know, I was, listening, I was reading Schaefer and Pentecost and Wolver out of Dallas. And then you had uh, Colonel Thiene came along. And I had, you know, then there was other people, J. Hampton Keithy III. And I was in love with the Word of God. I, I, I mean, I, I started taking, trying to teach myself Hebrew and Greek. I'm not even formally trained. I fell in love with it. And not just because, not because, oh, it made me smart. What it helped is it helped me solve the problems of my own personal life. Problems of insecurity. Who am I? The questions we all ask ourselves. It gave me all the answers. I can't tell you. So I'm, 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 I'm 62, and most of the things that men consider as marks of success in American culture, I don't have. But I'm bet you, I'll bet you I'm pretty close to the happiest guy in this room. Not to say you're not happy, but there's nobody. I, I tell you what, I love, where, love my relationship with God. I know when I die where I'm going to, and I know if I'm faithful, he's going to reward me for all that I've done to try to serve him and his people. And he's the same toward you too, who are serving God's people. And many, and many not, not in the public eye like I am, Okay that do many things behind the scenes that nobody sees. So I'll tell you that your idols will always disappoint you. If you have, let's take the God of relationships. Your husband and wife, your children, your parents, are all, your pastor, they're always going to let you down. We're sinners. Everybody's a sinner. 
There's a devil. You're a sinner. Nobody is perfect. So they're going to let you down if they're your God. Whoever it is. Jesus, he never let you down. He will never, ever leave you, forsake you. Hebrews 13, 8, and he said that in the context of money to Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted, who are losing everything, homes, everything. So you can ask yourself a question. Can I be happy and content even if I don't have a big bank account? Even if I don't own a home? Even if I don't have a wife and kids or a husband? Can I still be happy? Why are you happy? Because I have a relationship with a God who loved me and gave himself up for me, Galatians 2.20, and will never, ever leave me or forsake me. Worship the one who created you and I in the time and space continuum. Worship the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the being of God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God is waiting. And if you're already there with him and you're already walking with him, keep doing it. There's a great reward. Not just the rewards in the millennial reign and decorations and positions of authority, but the great reward of getting to know him. Remember Jeremiah, Paul quoted him in 1 Corinthians. He who boasts, let him boast in his knows me. So I say to you, are you boasting in your knowledge of the Lord? Are you? Or has the gods of this world deceived you into going away and following after one who can give you true happiness and contentment Define yourself as a believer, as someone who's a child of God. You're created in the image of God, and, he def and define yourself by the fact that he loved me at Calvary when I was his enemy, and then he raised me up and seated with his son at his right hand through the baptism of the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 6, when I was dead in my sins and transgressions. That's the God I want to follow. That's the God I wait at his feet listening to what he has to say to me in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this message would touch the hearts of all your people and help them to grow, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our, your son, Jesus Christ, who we worship here. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.